The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. Earlier this year, I went to Roanoke, Virginia, to teach a group of arborists, foresters, and community tree volunteers the secrets of fruit tree care. Now, as part of the talk, we did a pruning demonstration, and I went out to the tree that I would be working with and saw a really strange scratch on the trunk. You know what that is, right? One of the participants said to me. And actually, I didn't. I was baffled. It's buck rub, he laughed. We get a lot of that around here. Buck rub, I learned, is when a male deer or a buck rubs his antlers against a tree to mark his territory and to rub the velvet off his antlers. Now, if you're a fruit tree and you get rubbed, that's not necessarily a good thing, as any tree wound can be a place where fruit tree pests and diseases enter your tree. Now, I live in a big city and we don't really have a lot of deer roaming around our streets, but we do have other critters that damage our trees and our gardens, like raccoons and squirrels. Hey, even rabbits can cause major damage. Those guys are cute, but they can seriously damage your fruit trees and garden. Well, in today's show, we'll find out how we can protect our gardens from these little critters and large critters. So who's better to talk to than Rhonda Massingham Hart? She's the author of a book called Deer Proofing Your Yard and Garden, and... She also wrote a book called Squirrel Proofing Your Home and Garden. And she's been in a years-long battle to protect her garden from wildlife. Now she thinks she's just about figured out the solution, and we're going to find out more about that in a little bit. But before we start chatting, I would love to hear your questions and your comments for Rhonda. Now if you're listening to the show live do send us an email at instudio101 at gmail.com and we'll do our best to answer your question and to put your comment on the show. And of course, keep listening because later on in the show, you'll have an opportunity to win a copy of Rhonda's excellent book. But first, she's on the line with me right now. How are you today, Rhonda? I'm well, Susan. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. I am so happy to have you on the show because you are clearly a person with much experience in the battle with the critters. How how exactly has that come about? Um, You know, is it where you live? Do you just have a lot of critters that really like to eat things in your garden where you live? Oh, the mistakes I've made. (laughs) That's how it's come about. Um, I have my first real garden was about oh maybe ten miles from where I'm sitting now, and when I say real garden, it was this big area with a big fence around it, and I thought I had landed in heaven, 
and that's kind of where the learning process began, and it goes from there. It always starts with mistakes, doesn't it? I mean, that's everything I learn, it's from a mistake. It's always embarrassing, but now is it true, you've got to tell me, on the back of your book, it says that you live somewhere in between Deer Park and Elk, Washington. <laughs> is, that a, is that made up, or is that true? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> okay, it so I can see why deer... Environment. There, there should be a town called Moose just to the north of me, but there doesn't happen to be one. Okay, you have those two coming to visit you in your garden? Where I am currently, I'm a good five or six miles from the nearest group of elk, but we certainly have our share of deer and occasionally moose, yes. Okay, so really, ultimately, now I don't have deer roaming around in my part of Toronto in Canada, I mean, right in the city, though we have some deer on the outskirts, but not where I live. So what does it look like? What kind of damage do deer do in gardens or with or with fruit trees or whatever? How bad is it? You know, it depends so much on the maturity of fruit trees is the damage that they'll actually do. The older trees, we, we actually have two farmhouses, one we kind of inherited. It has established fruit trees you really don't see too much. And what you do see comes later in the season when they're reaching up for ripe fruit. Um, but the younger trees, you mentioned the deer rub or the buck rub, um, anything from that to just snapping off. The breakage is so clearly deer damaged because they'll snap it off and there's kind of a little raggedy edge where their teeth didn't quite make a clean cut, you know. Um, and they'll just, half the time they'll just, take a bite and spit it out if they don't like it and bite something else and move on down the line. But if they like it, oh, goodness, it's everything from just devouring your strawberries to stomping all over them. One year we had um, figured it out after the fact, but we had a um, apparently very pregnant doe laying down amongst the strawberries. It looked like a great spot for, you know, the night, I guess, and she smushed half of them. Oh, so she didn't even eat them. She was just relaxing there. It was a little bit of munching, but it was this time of year or a little earlier, so they weren't totally ripe here. We kind of have varying, you know, seasons for this, that, and the other thing to get ripe. And it just cracked me up because I hadn't mowed all the way around the strawberry patch, so there was some tall grass at the north end of it. And it just looked like a real safe spot for her to nestle down for the night. Oh, my goodness. Now, you were mentioning young fruit trees, and I've heard about browsing and and that deer actually, do they actually eat young branches? Is that nutritious and delicious for them? They do. A lot of this stuff is dependent on so many factors, but when those young branches start to bud out, especially is when they have more nutrition to them, um, they actually are more tender, and I'm, I'm presuming they taste better um, when there's a bud to the just leafing out stage. And depending on where you are, and, and it sounds like your climate's pretty similar to ours, it's that stage when they're just coming out of winter and they're hungry, and these trees happen to be very tender and tasty at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's pretty hard to resist. That sounds like dessert first. Mm, exactly. So it sounds like they go for branches, they go for fruit or berries. Is that true? I mean, what else do they eat? Flowers? I mean, what what else do they, what else do they snack on? It's funny. I I was looking at this. Yeah, you know, I have to go back and tell you the deer proofing book, which I now I kind of cringe at that title because nothing's deer proof. <laughs> I haven't had plastic flowers in a container on the front porch that got, they didn't get eaten, but they got bitten and stomped and thrown around like, oh, how dare you lie to me with these fake flowers. <laughs> but I'm looking at this book, and it's 20 years old, and the problem with something you wrote 20 years ago is you walk around slapping yourself in the forehead saying, oh, I was wrong about that. Case in point, one of the plants on the list that says they don't eat is columbine, you know, the pretty flowers that look like little hanging lanterns, kind of. Mm -hmm, yeah. 
Yeah, they eat that too. Oh no, <laughs> they do. Oh my gosh. I mean, the list of what they don't eat is a lot shorter than the list of what they do eat. Well, you have an interesting section, and it's just like what you what do you need to know about deer in order to protect your garden from them? And one of the points you make a bunch of really interesting points, but it's like you need to know how deer think. Like, how do deer think? And what are they thinking when they're trying to munch on your plastic flowers? <laughs> I That would probably be the one question. I couldn't answer that one for you in front of deer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's all, it's all seasonal and it's all contextual. So where I am here, this is fawning season or a little bit past fawning season. So the does are a little more reclusive now that they've had or are having their babies. It's also when the velvet starts to form on the bucks, so their antlers are really tender, and they tend to stay more isolated and reclusive. Maybe they'll hang out with, like, one other buck. This is kind of my reprieve for the year, and I know that, so I'm a little less vigilant, which, you know, doesn't always pay off, but sometimes I get away with it. What they are always thinking is survival, period. And that usually involves, you know, not getting eaten by something else and then finding whatever else they can eat, which they're willing to test just about anything as those plastic flowers would, you know, testify. Hmm. Yeah, it makes you feel so much compassion, I guess. You know, where you live, I guess, is a quite um, sort of, uh, it's country-ish kind of area, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's... My dream when I was a kid was my own farm way out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, it took me 50 years to get here, but I'm pretty happy with it. We're very, very rural. Wow, lovely. Okay, so let's just have a few suggestions. So so how do you, and I know you're kind of cringing when we say deer-proof, but how do you protect <laughs> your yard, your garden, and in particular your fruit trees? What What are some of the things that you explored and researched when you wrote that book? Well, when I started this originally, um, I had two sources, well, three sources of information outside of my own very, very limited experience at that point. Um, you know, I, I had my friends and family. I had um, <laughs> I had boxes of old magazines, old gardening magazines that I went through. But the U.S. government put out um, a huge tome something about, I can't remember the exact title, but it was something like uh, Wildlife Damage Mitigation. Mm. So it went into everything from cougar predation on cattle ranches to deer damage to large-scale um, rodent infestations, you know, all, all these different things. And that information came from the U.S. land-grant universities who had funded studies of how to you know, mitigate all this wildlife damage. And, of course, you know, uh, commercial orchards were, were a huge part of this. So that's where I picked up a lot of the, the deer ideas to try. And some of them are really ingenious, um, and we can get into the details of those later, but coming up with the information was as much trial and error as it was research. But I, I think I told you earlier, I don't, have the best memory, so I just started writing all this stuff down, and eventually you start to organize what you wrote down, and then then you have a book. (laughs) I learned that way, too, actually. That's exactly how I learn. I have these experiences. I write them down. I tell the story, and then sometimes I just have to go and reread, and like, okay, that's what I learned at that time, so I think you're not alone in that. Of course not. I think that's how we all do it. At least us writers, we like to do things that way. And you are definitely, you've written quite a few books. So obviously you've, you've done, uh, you've done a lot of that. So let's get into a little nitty gritty. What are some of the most ingenious suggestions that you've come across? Well, like I say, it kind of depends on the context. We have the farmhouse that has, um, I don't even know how old those fruit trees are. They're probably at least 50 years old and they're mature so the bark isn't an issue. Some of the lower hanging leaves may or may not get nibbled, but you cannot tell because those trees are so mature. They have just kind of gone past the point of being first on the menu, so to speak. So you flip over to the house I live in, which has the newer fruit trees. And i got to admit, I have those 
fenced in to my, my deer Fort Knox. They're safe from deer. They can't reach them. Um, but aside from that, I mean, one of the most clever things I saw was a fence that was developed by, I want to say, University of Minnesota. Uh, don't don't kill me if I got that wrong. But <laughs> it was a it was a hot wire fence, like an electrical single strand, and on that they took a simple piece of aluminum foil, and they would fold that foil over the hot wire strand. And the trick was inside of that little bit of aluminum foil, they they swab in a little bit of peanut butter. It's mm. something that was aromatic and tasty to deer. That oh well, here I'll have a taste of that. And as soon as that little wet nose or that wet tongue touched that little piece of tin foil that was attached to that electric wire, that <gasps> it was really interesting. And the way my uh, editor at the time referred to it, she says it's like training deer. And she's right. It teaches them that even though this smells good and might taste good, if you come past this line, you're going to get zapped. And for a lot of people, especially big commercial orchards, that was a genius. It was a, it was a lifesaver for their orchards. That's incredible. So a little bit of peanut butter on, you know, in the electric fence and tied up together. And uh, because if if the fence was there and there it wasn't electric, would they find a way past? I mean, why bother with the peanut butter and the zapping? Wouldn't they just kind of come up to the fence and touch it and they would still get zapped? I guess it was based on the strategic placement of, because, you know, you do remember, too, that deer are very habitual. They tend to take the same routes very frequently. So I'm thinking, especially when you're talking about a big commercial orchard, they had pathways that were more or less established. So they would put these little tempting treats, Mm. you know, right in their path, or they'd try it and turn back. But, you know, it's a good point because very few of these barrier-type fences um, that leave gaps are effective in the long term, in my experience. Now, maybe somewhere else they work better, but I have a lot of deer pressure here. And what we have here are white-tailed deer, which I'm pretty sure that's what you would have in your surrounding area as well. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so so fencing. So... In your book, you talk about different types of fencing and what works, and you've yeah. told us about this electric fence peanut butter situation, which sounds really interesting. There are also sprays, are there not? I mean, can you not just um, spray your tree with something that the deer will find unappealing, especially if it's a young tree and protected in that way? I have had some pretty good success with the sprays, but not on a large scale. Um if you only had one or two trees and you are able to be out there and spray them, you know, certainly after a rain or if you happen to water with overhead sprinklers that wash off the leaves, keeping that spray fresh really does work pretty well. The egg and garlic type sulfur sprays, those, they seem like they really do work at least here and there. Um, personally, what I have found is I've got a lot of things interplanted, and this is kind of... My fruit trees are in my regular garden area, so other things that are outside of the regular garden area that I use that spray on, I mean, it took me years and years to find plants that the deer wouldn't test, because even if they don't eat them, once they've tested them, they haven't done them any favors. And having found plants that the deer won't test, I interplant... So brazenly, I interplant things that I love, like that columbine that I know the deer are going to snap up, but I spray those things with the sprays. So they've got foxglove that they don't like and ladies' mantle that they don't like and a handful of lavender that they despise. And, oh, there's my columbine, and they don't even really look at it anymore because it's been years and years of all this crap oh that's disgusting I won't eat that and then something that smells bad in between so they they kind of keep moving until they get to the roses interesting and that's very interesting so essentially you're kind of disguising the stuff that you want to grow that you want to keep them away from with the stuff and you've got your lists in your book of all these plants that they just find very unappealing now, you, you mentioned roses, and you had told me um, that roses are like, and I'm a chocolate lover, roses are like chocolate for deer. 
So would this work with roses? It works. It's always the same answer, I guess. It works in context because I have a whole bank of roses along the south side of my house, and I I had to wind up finally putting a fairly ugly fence around them, and it was, like, so frustrating because the roses are there, you know, because I love roses for the beauty of them, and then you wind up putting a fence around it, and it doesn't look as nice, but... Yeah. Where I, where I only have one or two rose plants out in the mixed border, if I spray those, it does work. And, and like okay. I say, you have to be out there pretty vigilantly so that you keep that spray fairly fresh. And, and people can tell when you've sprayed it because it's a clinging smell. They, they advertise it like, oh, the smell goes away and you won't notice it. And that's true as far as the rose bush or the plants go but if you come in the house wearing it people notice trust me <laughs> they're like oh i don't want to hang around you <laughs> oh boy we have an interesting question from jen from kansas city so oh, here's boy. what she writes um, she writes love the show i learn something new in every episode i'm so glad you do jen that's great she says if you have time i'd love it if you and Rhonda could talk specifically about voles and vole proofing fruit trees we're fortunate to have very low deer pressure in our community garden and orchard. But voles are a major problem. We've tried rat traps and boxes, wrapping the base of the trees in window screens, and providing perches for the local hawks. But we just can't keep up and would love some more ideas. So let's take a second. We'll come back to deer. But do you have any suggestions for Jen from Kansas City? I have to confess that underground things from moles to voles to ground squirrels to gophers, I I have only once, and I don't like this at all, but I have only once resorted to these underground poisons. And there's so many reasons why I don't like that. But in all honesty, it, it really was the most effective thing. I've done all the same things that Jen mentioned, including digging out a two by, I think it was a two by four foot wide pit, <laughs> lining it with hardware cloth, backfilling it, and planting cherry, uh, one cherry tree into that particular one. We just wound up having to cut the tree down five or six years later because whatever got to the roots got to the roots. And when we pulled out the dead, you know, five inches around now, uh, trunk. It was like sometimes I think maybe container planting is the answer, and it's you know the only way you can get away with that is with the true dwarf varieties. I have other fruit trees in that garden space, but that one was the only one that was damaged, and I wonder if certain roots don't taste better to them. And I'm wondering the same because you have lots you have lots of different trees. Why did they go for that particular one? So that's yeah, a really it, it good... It was the most established tree out there, which would you'd think be the safest one because it would have more different branching root systems. So that would be something to research for, for me for an upcoming show or something and just to see if anybody's done any research on rootstock and vulnerability to these underground creatures. Very interesting. It's a very good point because there are there are only a handful of you know grafted root stocks that are really pushed out there because they are so hardy and they're thrifty and all these other good things about them, and you know some of them graft well. And I guess there's there's root stock, stem stock, and fruiting stock. Now you can have three different stocks on the same fruit tree. Hmm. Well, I think there's some potential for research there. That sounds interesting. Now, we have another, and this is a linked, so I'm going to go to this email as well. Shaw, this is uh, from Prairie Drive Park Community Garden in Toronto. So we've got a lot of community gardeners uh, today listening. And Shaw says, last year we had lots of problems from groundhogs and rabbits that seriously damaged the growing produce. This year we've erected a fence at a deeper depth below ground level. Still, they tried to dig a hole, but at a deeper depth, couldn't. Now we're protected and safe. That's encouraging. What do you think about that? You know, I, I've been so fortunate where I have been that I haven't had to deal with groundhogs and rabbits, but I have a friend 
And that's basically what she wound up doing. Um, she took a, a ditch, which I guess they call it, and they dropped that fence to a two-foot depth, which just seems excessive. And she said it so far has worked. But the other thing she has tried, especially against rabbits, and she's reporting success, so I'm going why somebody else has experienced her, as um, it's like a coyote urine smell thing. Mm. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it supposedly is a very effective way to deter rabbits in particular and somewhat deer. I'm not as sure about groundhogs, but, you know, my go-to plan for any of these problems when they first come up and every year something else decides to invade the garden is I, I try to make it as horrible as possible for myself and usually that works to deter whatever the <laughs> critter is. I kid you not, this idea of coyote urine and, and bobcat urine, some of the stuff that hunters use as well, it just seems horrible and yet people say that it works as a deterrent. But personally, the best look I've had has been with physical barriers. And so the other thing I might add for rabbits and ground squirrels, or sorry, groundhogs, might be um, when that electric wire again running, well, you know, maybe six inches high is all. Try not to trip over that hmm. because it's got to be at a level where if they touch it, they're they're grounded. They can't be like climbing under it or hopping over it. Interesting. Oh, Jen responded and to your comment. She says, thank you. We have a lot of children at the garden, so we're hoping to avoid poison if we can. Well, so hope- <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great idea. I think that's a I great idea. I doing it. I have to confess it was like, oh, weak moment, but it, it's not something I'd want around children or pets or no. honestly even uh, hawks and other wildlife to catch those little vermins. Just goes to show how far you can be pushed, hey? So I have one, <laughs> one more quick question before we go to a little, uh, um, uh, some words from our sponsors. We've got a question from Cliff in Toronto. This is interesting. He says, does the coyote urine have to be male? I've heard of this, he says. Huh. Yeah, why can't I'm it? not the one personally collecting it. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it matters. Yeah. I don't think it would make a difference because there are, I've got a lot of coyotes out here and I have been fortunate enough to watch them a little bit now and again, their behaviors. And I will tell you, females are fierce hunters and the mm. whole point is to get them afraid of predation. Of oh, I farmers. see. So, so that's the goal. I don't think it would matter as to the gender. So Cliff writes again and he says, does male human urine work? And I guess that depends if the male has a big gun and is scary. You know, I mean, you're saying that basically the smell of the urine has to do with a predator. So it has to be. Yeah, so. and that, that's the whole point. That yeah. So nobody, so we shouldn't be going and peeing on our gardens. That really won't make a difference. <laughs> I, I, have, I have read so many articles about, oh, human urine. I'm like, oh, please don't do that. Oh, my gosh. Well, we have to open our minds to whatever it takes. So uh, and it doesn't, you know, hurt the creatures. So you know what, I'm going to uh, remind all the listeners that we really would love to hear your questions, your comments. The email is instudio101 at gmail.com. Remember to include your first name, the city that you're writing from. And we so want to hear from you. So Rhonda, let's take a few minutes. We're going to hear some words from our sponsors. And then after that, we're going to go into more details about all the creatures that can wreak havoc in our gardens. Let's talk about squirrels as well, raccoons, rabbits. So you okay holding the line for a moment? Oh, you bet. Thank you so much. Okay, hang in there. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. We'll be back after this short break. Did you know that one of the best ways to ensure organic fruit tree growing success is to order the right tree for your unique conditions? You'll get the widest selection of cultivars from a specialist fruit tree nursery, where you can find heirloom trees, disease-resistant varieties, and more. 
To download a free list of fruit tree nurseries in Canada and the United States, go to orchardpeople.com slash buyfruittrees. That's B-U-Y dash fruit dash trees. Enjoy the list and your new fruit tree. And learn more about how to care for your tree by signing up for my free monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com. Looking for a quick, easy-to-apply, and all-natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer Hand Manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children, and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-sol.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer. If you want your fruit trees to live a long and healthy and productive life, it's essential that you water them properly when they're young. You need to water slowly and deeply so the moisture seeps into your young tree's expanding root system. That sounds easy enough, but you'd be surprised at how often the water you provide for your trees just rolls away, leaving its young roots high and dry. That's why we at TreePans.com have worked with orchards to develop a product that ensures all the water gets to your tree's root system. Our expandable tree pans funnel rain or irrigation water to the drip line of your young trees. Additionally, tree pans eliminate weed growth under the tree canopy, as well as protect your trees from mowers, tractors, and weed whips. Tree pans are used in orchards, city parks, and in residential yards. And once your young tree is established, you can move your tree pans to another young tree. Learn more about tree pans at treepans.com. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. Send Susan an email right now in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. And in today's program, I'm chatting with Rhonda Massingham-Hart, the author of Deer Proofing Your Yard and Garden. Now, in the first part of the show, we talked about deer and how to protect our fruit trees and gardens from deer damage. But of course, there are other smaller creatures that can make a serious mess out of our plants and trees. And for me, squirrels are at the top of the list. You know, it's the way they take an apple from a tree or a tomato from your garden. They take a bite. And then after a defiant swish of their tail, they just leave the half-eaten fruit behind. At least they should have the decency to eat the whole thing. Or at least tidy up after themselves. So do you have challenges with squirrels and other creatures in your garden? Tell us about it by sending us an email at instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to give us your first name and location. In the meantime, back to Rhonda Massingham-Hart. So Rhonda, tell me about your book on squirrel-proofing your home and garden. So that you wrote before your um, deer-proofing book, is that correct? Oh, goodness, you asked me to remember something. (laughs) It was about the same time I... Oh, you wrote them at the same time. A couple of years after, to be honest. Okay, so so basically, uh, again, at the same time you're having these deer challenges, what kind of stuff was happening with squirrels in your yard? Well, thankfully, I am no longer in that particular spot. 
because it was in a very wooded area where the garden was just kind of surrounded by, what you know, trees. And I could not figure out for the life of me what was getting in this in the summer tomatoes, really nice red ripe tomatoes, and something was like taking a bite or gnawing half of it and leaving it. And I thought, well, that's that's a lot of damage for a slug or you know a smaller critter. And it was it was actually my husband that suggested it might be squirrels because we had them all over. We didn't even bother to put up bird feeders then. And what we finally concocted was, it sounds like so much bother for just a few plants, but what we had, we had those tomato, you know, cages that people use. And, of course, the tomatoes had totally overflown, you know, that. They were draping all over it. But he wanted to build a cage, so we built this big cage, and I think it was like three feet square to put over each tomato plant because, you know, technically the tomatoes were his territory. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so and, the, and the it was cage. Out of that hardware cloth, and it did save the rest of the tomatoes. And it, you know, and we we had those for years. It was kind of a big deal to build them, but so at that point, we kind of had forsaken the you know the smaller little cages for the next couple of years. They worked really well. They were they were a pain to build, but you, no squirrel will penetrate them. Now that's for one type of plant. What do you do for a whole row of crops or for fruit trees with squirrels? My best success has been, again, a barrier of physical exclusion. But they do also make, you know, sprays uh, that work. And again, back to the whole, look, coyote, fox, urine market. <laughs> hmm. So back to that urine thing. So where you're no, now... sorry, it all reveals around that. <laughs> so it's back to urine. Okay. And, and again, with this urine stuff, like... Are you, is it a spray or is it a drizzle around your plants and trees thing? Or how does that work? They do make a spray. Um, gosh, I don't, I don't want to get into brand names or anything, but they do make a spray that is marketed for deer, rabbits, squirrels, etc. But I don't think that that's the urine-based stuff. The urine-based stuff that at least I have seen on the market was just Little drops. You don't need a lot of it, thank you. Hmm. Uh, but little drops that were strategically placed around, like, the barrier of a garden. Um, I did have one other guy give me a good idea for... He built um, basically the same idea of a cage, but he did it bed by bed. So his cages were, again, about three feet wide, but he built them, I think, eight feet long, and then he could attach them. I mean, this is getting to be really hardcore, you know, um, keeping out any kind of animal. But what he told me, and he worked at a garden store, and this has been five or six years ago, I guess, but he said the best part of it is once you've used those cages for a couple of seasons, the deer, the rabbits, the squirrels, the above-ground critters basically give up because they know those cages are there. They're not even going to bother. They've found something else to eat. So Mm. a lot of it's based on their behavior as well as just an exclusionary barrier. That's really, really interesting. So there's some sort of memory communication. I just came up with this idea right now. So, for instance, with deer, they're hungry, right? Those guys are hungry. You can't blame them for wanting to eat your garden. So what if you were to find somewhere nearby, like a piece of land somewhere, and put a bunch of food out for the deer? And so you're saying that they found another place to eat. So put some food somewhere else, and then they'll just eat that food, I don't know, some rotten apples or whatever, and then they won't come into your garden. What do you think? Can I tell you my story? Go on. (laughs) Tell me your story. I've got to hear. What's the story? I am not a fan of attracting any kind of damaging wildlife anywhere near either my food garden or my garden in my yard for ornamentals. And here's why. <laughs> um, several years ago, we, we have horses, and I would throw hay to the horses in the winter time, and I feed a lot of hay. I feed a lot of good quality hay, and I was noticing that even though they were very furry, they looked like they were kind of, like, not really thrifty. They looked like they were kind of getting thin. And in the winter time here, you know, we have very severe winters, as I'm sure you've experienced as well. 
and it can be below zero, and the wind can blow, and there's snow and ice, and I'm very concerned. I want my horses in a good, fat, happy condition throughout the winter. So I throw more hay, and I come out, and I watch them eat, and there's several piles of hay, and out of the woods come these deer, and there's so many of them that the horses just back away and don't eat. Well, I'll show you. I'll put a little pile of grain out here and way away from, from the horses so that the deer will go to the grain instead. And the horses are seeing me put grain out, and they're thinking, well, that's, that's great. They get the grain. We just get the hay. Well, the next night or two, it started off with like maybe two or three deer, and that would come to the grain. And then there were four or five seven or eight and I'm putting out more piles and I'm out there in the snow stomping down the snow to make a nice little flat spot for the deer to enjoy their green so that my poor horses can have something to eat. Over the course of about three or four weeks I was pouring out a 50 pound bag of grain every night in about 20 different piles. I don't know how they do it but it started with a few deer and it came down to I, I, I lost count at 60 or 65. Oh, you're kidding. And so my rationale is unless you want to attract them, the only way you're going to really distance them from your garden is to go far away. A quarter mile might do it. And your neighbors are really going to hate you if oh, you yeah. start attracting deer so, to their garden. So those guys, um, those deer, were communicating with each other. They're saying, hey, guys, we found an amazing grain pile. And come join us. Come and share. How 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 community minded? <laughs> yeah, Don't you think? I, I, that's exactly what what I was thinking. Exactly. You know, like if I if you gave me some dark chocolate, really fine quality dark chocolate, I'm sorry, I, I probably wouldn't invite five of my closest friends to share it with me. I would probably keep it for myself. So let's say this looks oh, I, good I on the deer. Maintain that stance. Don't don't feed the bears, <laughs> even if they're deer. <laughs> well, okay. So that's not the solution. We've got an email from Tom from San Diego, California. And Tom says, Hi, Susan and Rhonda. Great show. Amazing information. Thank you for the insight. Well, thank you, Tom. That's lovely. Thank you for emailing That's us. That's very kind. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, so there you go. You've got to come on the show again sometime, Rhonda. So, okay. So let's see what else I wanted to ask you. We were talking about little critters. And I have a story about bunnies. So bunnies are cute. I like bunnies. They're all good, except that I was involved in planting an orchard in Scarborough, Ontario. So not far from Toronto. And the soil was amazing. It was like chocolate pudding. It was so rich and I had it tested. It was beautiful soil. We planted the whips, the young fruit trees. They grew beautifully throughout the summer. Like it was magical. And then the winter happened and I didn't visit the site because I was doing other things. There were people supposedly keeping an eye on it. So what happened was I come back the next spring and all the trees had been girdled. They had been nibbled on all around these young trees, these beautiful, young, thriving trees. Um, So they'd been nibbling. Something was nibbling around the base of the tree. Do you think it could be rabbits? And what would you suggest in this, you know, in this kind of situation? You know, the... It could have been rabbits, but it also could have been any of these little critters that winter underground, and they they can come up and find a quick meal and run back downstairs to sleep it off. But I'm sure, you know, I mean, the classic thing we do, especially for young fruit trees, is we, we can wrap the base of them. I really am a big fan of this hardware cloth because nothing gets through it except, you know, insects and air. Hmm. And I've then when the first ones I planted, I put the raptus hardware. You know what this is? I keep no, describe it, it to it's me. What a is very it? Fine you... mesh wire. Oh, it's a and wire. It's very dirty. Okay. So it's a wire well, and cloth. I wrapped that around the base of the trees, but I mean, I wrapped it. It came in a three foot length, a three foot width. So I wrapped it three feet around the tree. I was like, fine. <laughs> you guys are going to attack my tree wherever you can get to it. I have seen ground squirrels climb up the height of three feet on that wire climate ground squirrels and those guys can really jump too so after that height i actually wrap some of the plastic wrap around from there up 
and again, it's you know it's only those first two or three years when they're very tender. The older they get, the harder it is from their for those small critters to chew through the bark. Um, bigger critters like horses, I have learned, can chew through just about anything. Oh, That's a dear. whole another story. So don't turn your horses out in your orchard when their trees are young. But, um, that's it for me is, is ex- barrier exclusion. I know that the sense work, the problem in winter is you are overriding two very primal survival instincts, the fear of predators versus hunger. So if they're out and about in the wintertime, you know, those sprays just aren't nearly as effective as they are in the spring when they have other options. So for me, it's always going to be physical barriers. Physical barriers. Now, you talk about that hardware cloth, which is sort of like a wire mesh cloth. Um, and you said you wrap it around, but you don't wrap it around like a, a plastic spiral, uh, you know, wrapper that goes right up to the trunk of the tree. No. The plastic right. spiral you got guards. Me on that. You're right. It's, it's kind of like you form a tube a close tube. to the trunk, but not. you don't have to be touching it. Because if you're touching it, then their little teeth can get through those spaces and get so through them. Three and feet tall. The first okay. few years, that's what I did. I wrapped the plastic wrap all the way around the top above where the hardware cloth was to hide them maybe, I'm trying to remember, maybe six or eight inches higher. And this is, you know, you're talking about a lot of work and some expense, but I only had, I think I had eight trees that year. So, you know, it was an afternoon project. If someone has a lot of trees, uh, that can get, you know, to be a lot of work and a lot of expense. But I'll tell you what, once you've gotten through those first few years, you'll thank yourself. Absolutely. And so what about the white spiral uh, guards for trees? Do you not believe in those, using those in the winter, taking them off in the summer? You know, would they stop the nibbling on the bark? I've I've had pretty good luck with them, but like I said, I've only used them once or twice. I've heard that there can be issues with um, sun scald in some areas, so some people like to leave them on so that the bark of young trees doesn't get all that summer heat, but I haven't had that experience myself, and I have to confess I'm a little guilty of not researching things I haven't actually dealt with. So <laughs> well, how do you actually, feel about that? Have... Susan, I'm here to learn. You tell me what sure. you want to Well, share. I'll tell you what You're I've the fruit learned. Tree lady. I'm the fruit tree lady. Yeah, what I've learned is actually when we do have the white spiral guards on in the winter, we're good. At that particular orchard, for whatever reason, we didn't have them. So, But oh. I have not had too many problems in our orchard, so... Now, we have another uh, email from Yola, and Yola's uh, listening in Long Beach, California. Now, Yola knows a secret I haven't yet announced on the show, and that's this show um, actually won a silver award of achievement from the GWA, which is used to be called the Garden Writers Association. Now, I think it's called the Garden Writers and Communicators Association. So we have an award, and obviously Yola somehow knows about that because she writes... Hi, Susan. First and foremost, congrats on your award for the radio show. And I'm so happy about this award, by the way. That's me talking. She says, I love the... I second that, by the way. Congratulations. It's so nice. Very well done. Yay. So she says, Yola says, I love the info today. Now she says... What about fencing your garden? So I, I feel like what Yola's trying to say is, what about putting a big fence rather than protecting tree by tree? Just put a big fence around your garden. Make it nice looking. How, how would that work? It is such an individual preference. I, I've seen two things that I feel are fairly indestructible. One was the fellow that did a fence around each separate bed and he did that so that the um, panel, the front panel, it's kind of hard to describe it without a visual, I guess, but the front panel was removable. So you pull that panel off, do your weeding, do your trimming or harvesting, put that panel back in place, move to the next bed. And that worked for him because he didn't have, for whatever reason, he didn't want to put a big fence around his, his it was he was a renter, basically was what it was, and he didn't want to put a big permanent fence around his garden. But what I've personally wound up with um, is basically a deer fort knocks around my garden and my fruit trees, and it's a double fence. So I highly recommend it for its effectiveness against anything that walks above ground. And you notice I said walks because certain things can still fly in at this stage. But I have the 
first fence that's immediately around the perimeter of the garden, about six feet tall. Um, the posts that I used were eight feet tall, and we sunk them in the ground around two to two and a half feet. So it kind of shortens up your you know, top line. The second row of fencing is about seven feet away from the first, seven feet out. And it's only about four and a half feet tall. And in between those two fences, you can do several things. You can still put garden crops in those spaces because this is so effective against deer because I'm kind of talking around in a circle. I apologize, but it's a fence. It's a defense fence against deer because they do not jump high and wide. And this fence has been in place on this particular garden for eight years. I've never once had a deer. They don't even come close to it anymore. They kind of looked at it at first like, hmm, maybe, but never once had to even try to broach it. And along the inside perimeter, I have roses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I know it's working. Oh, but you yay. can plant anything you want in that middle perimeter because they don't even try to jump it. What I use it for is chickens. My chicken run goes all the way around the garden, and they're also on bug patrol, so that actually helps with a little bit of pest control that way. It prevents small rodents from scurrying above ground into the garden, uh, especially my beloved ground squirrels. So my ideal fence is that particular style. It's, it's two rows of fencing, and I use a two-by-four wire, which is big enough to keep out big animals like deer, neighbor dogs, which is another wildlife issue, um, moose, never had, I've had a moose near the garden, never had one in it, not this one. <laughs> but it's a very personal thing because people either like the look of a garden fence or, or they don't, or they can afford to put up a nice fence or they can't. The, the cheap alternative, which is where I actually began with this particular garden, is uh, they make those um, metal posts that you could pound into the ground, and they make them quite tall. I had eight-foot-tall metal posts, and I had wrapped around that the um, black kind of invisible, supposed to be invisible deer mesh. And that actually worked pretty well for a while. Had I done a double fence with that, I think it would have worked just as well as my expensive wood post and metal wire fence. I just like the look of this better. Well, you must, uh, well, maybe you can get me a picture and I'll put it on our Facebook page and I can add it so people can see it. It sounds amazing. We're going oh, I'd love to. Thank yeah, you. that would be great. So what we're going to do is we're, um, we, we're going to chat again after the commercial break. But first, I want to raffle off your wonderful book, which I really enjoyed, Deer Proofing Your Yard and Garden. So here's what I'm going to ask the listeners to do. If you would like a copy of this book for free, sent to you, to your door, write an email to instudio101 at gmail.com and put a title, Book Giveaway. And then in the email, tell me why you would like a copy of this book. So if you're the third person to send that email, we'll send you the book for free. So how does that sound? That sounds pretty good, I hope. Instudio101 at gmail.com. Let's see who writes. Rhonda, stay on the line. We're going to continue chatting after the uh, a word from our sponsors. And uh, yeah, you're, you'll hold on the line for a mid- uh, minute. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back in just a minute. My name is Mike McNairn. I'm the manager of Universal Field Supplies. Universal Field Supplies specializes in products that are used by arborists. They're professional quality tools that uh, guys that use them every day need to rely on. So they tend to be higher quality than what's found in big box stores. The Universal Field Supplies product could be used by anybody that has trees and likes to look after trees. We've all been to school for forestry or arboriculture, and we have many years of experience. We would be happy to answer any questions people have and actually ask questions of them and find out exactly what their needs are and determine what 
product would suit them the best. Don't hesitate to call Here's How to Reach Us. Call 1-800-387-4940 or email at info at ufsupplies.com. See you soon. Universal Field Supplies has stores in Mississauga, Ontario and Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. Learn more at universalfieldsupplies.com. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffletree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture, and lots more. Thanks for tuning in. In today's program, we've been talking about how to protect your fruit trees and garden from all sorts of critters, like deer, squirrels, bunnies, and their friends. And now I've been speaking with Rhonda Massingham-Hart, the author of various books, including Deer Proofing Your Garden. So Rhonda's on the line, and Rhonda, we have another uh, question from a listener. So here's the question from Opal in Toronto. (laughs) Interesting question. Any suggestions for cat proofing? I have three neighbors who feed cats, and now I have a feral colony of two families living in my backyard, and I'm unable to garden this year, as I don't know what diseases these animals carry. Their presence has increased the presence of squirrels, skunks, and raccoons. Oh boy. Wow. So what do you think about that, Rhonda? Oh, Opal. Yeah. (laughs) My heart goes out to you. I right now am dealing with seven feral cats that just appear. I catch them with live traps when I can. And here I can take them and have them neutered and then hopefully, you know, either farm them out as barn cats or hopefully they can be tamed. Most of these cats that I'm talking about are so wild you can't get near them, and I wholeheartedly agree. You can't really garden with a big colony of cats, especially if you're looking at a food garden. Um, Live trapping does work, but the bigger problem, honestly, is either your neighbors or whoever it is that drops these cats off way out here in the middle of nowhere. It's more of a social issue than a gardening issue because people need to be responsible for their pets. Um, having said that, um, the one upshot of having a few cats around is it has sort of slowed down the rodent population. Maybe one or two is, is good, but, um, again, if you can put up a physical barrier that will keep out rabbits, it'll keep out cats, but it's a lot of trouble to go to when really it's a problem that should be addressed from the source. And I, I'm sorry, that's probably not a lot of help and you already knew that, mm-hmm. But it's it's touches me because I'm dealing with that right this minute. And um, maybe a big dog. I don't have a dog. Maybe that's worth a shot. Oh, that's an interesting suggestion. Yeah, I just I also feel for Opal. It's it's so hard because you want to express your creativity in the garden, grow your own food. The only thing that I would say as being involved in a community orchard project. Um, 
don't know, you know, where you live, but it's a wonderful thing to start a project like a community orchard in a nearby park. You can meet people, you can um, develop community, you learn so much. Um, check out my book called Growing Urban Orchards. You can get that in the library if you're from Toronto and various places where I tell the story of our orchard and how, how, how much it's enriched my life. So don't give up on That's gardening. That's a wonderful idea. Yeah, don't. I mean, if you can't make your garden work where you are, go where the garden works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so before the show ends, we've got three emails. Now, let's do them in order. The first one was from Lori. And Lori says, I would like the deer proofing book because I've recently planted 24 trees and I'm worried about them getting eaten. Okay, that was our first email. I wish I could send everybody one. Our second email was from Alice. Hi. Now, where's Alice from? I don't know. Uh, Hi. Oh, she says, hi, writing in for the prize. Love your show. Thank you for your information. The book that Rhonda wrote sounds like such great free information for folks that have these problems. And I do. So that's Alice. Now let's see. And she says she's from Orlando, Florida. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we've got two emails and I said for the third, what are we going to do? I'm going to ask Gary. Gary, let me put both those names in this little cup. And then oh. you can pull them out. Okay. Because otherwise, if we had more time, we'd wait. And I'm sure more people would write in for yes. the book. But we have two for that. So why don't we just put the names in a cup and oh. you want to pull it out? Okay. Lori and Alice, we're going to put your names in a cup. That's what we're going to do. I'll be right in. Hold okay. on. Gary's coming in. I wish, I wish uh, Rhonda, that you were here as the guest. It would be more fun for you to pick the name out of the cup. <laughs> But let's see. And well, it just. I, even I can manage to pull a, a name out of a hat if there's only a couple of them. It's I can only do that. a couple. <laughs> well, we've got Gary scribbling away there, so uh, we'll find out. And this is actually an interesting lesson because I know that there is, there's about 2,000 listeners out there. And I know sometimes people say, oh, you know, I'm not going to write. I'll never get it. But we, you know, you got a good chance because there's a lot of shy people out there who aren't writing in. Oh. Well, I appreciate very much both these people because yeah. I understand what they're going through. It gets really frustrating when you're about to plant something especially 24 fruit trees that's that's very ambitious but i have to admit i think gardening in orlando would be full of all different kinds of challenges from the weather to they have different sorts of insects and pests down there i wouldn't want alligators in my garden (laughs) well oh my gosh me either okay you hear the crinkle crinkle here's the crinkle i don't know if you guys can hear crinkling I am opening up my little white piece of paper, and Alice, you are the winner. You get the free book. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I'm so sorry, Lori. Please try again another in next month. I'll have another book, and maybe you'll win then. And I so love that both of you guys wrote in. So amazingly, this is crazy, uh, Rhonda. I feel like you and I could talk for another hour, but the show is coming for, to an end. So, if you get ready to talk about chickens or horses or canning or hoarding, hoarding is my favorite. Oh, subject. hoarding! Anytime, Ted. <laughs> okay, well, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do send us the pictures. I'll put them on my website of your your double fence. I will do that. And I appreciate your interest. Yeah, thank you so much. So that uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Susan, and thank you for inviting me to Canada for the morning. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, take that, care. that take care. Bye-bye. So that was Rhonda Massingham-Hart, the author of Deer Proofing Your Yard and Garden. Do check out her book in the library or order it online. Anyways, strangely, she lives somewhere between Deer Park and Elk in Washington. Oh, dear me. Okay, that was a joke, guys. Oh, dear me. Okay. Anyways, at least Gary's laughing. So that's it for the Urban Forestry Radio show today. And I really hope you enjoyed the show. And we will tune in next month with more great interviews. And uh, check out orchardpeople.com if you want to read some blogs and stuff about fruit trees. That's all for now. The Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner. And thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at @urbanfruittrees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.